0: Hello friends, I'm Rosie Acosta, your host and guide on this journey to self-discovery and radical love. I've walked a path filled with challenges. Growing up in East LA during the 92 LA riots, it left me searching for meaning, for mentors, for a way to truly understand the purpose of life. But you know what I found? The power of conversation. As a first-gen Mexican American, these conversations became my compass, offering insight, support, and an endless amount of inspiration. So I decided to create a space where we can share these conversations with you, our community. And that's how the Radically Love podcast was born. Join me as we dive into topics like mindfulness, spirituality, self-love, and the keys to overall healthy living. I'm joined by my dear friend, fellow author, producer, and teacher, Tessa Tobar.
1: Hi, I'm Tessa, and I'm grateful to be part of this community, because it teaches me so much about what it means to be human. Ever since I was a little one, I was always asking my dad the deeper questions in life. Why are we here? What happens when we are gone? What is the purpose of life? I love this show because I get to ask the questions that cut right to the meaning of life. I've learned that no matter how much we want the path to be clear or straightforward it rarely is and that is actually part of the beauty that creates a radically loved life. Please do us a favor share the episodes you love
0: with your friends and leave us a review. Together we'll learn how to create a life that's truly deeply radically loved. Let's begin. Yay! Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Radically Love
1: Podcast. Guess who I'm here with? Hey, hey, it's Tessa coming at you. Rosie, <laughs> I'm so excited you're back. Oh, oh isn't it so
0: nice? I mean, you and I have been talking about this for a little while, but I am so it's it's like coming back
1: home. Yes, that's definitely what it feels like. Welcome back. Here we are. Let's have some tea. Let's sit and chat.
0: I love that. Um, I'm going to already just give everybody a forewarning. My voice is a little... I, I caught that winter... I don't even want to say what it is, but a thing, a winter congested situation and I'm on the mend, which is great. But I'm really excited to be back for so many reasons. And one of the main reasons is because I... Love having these types of conversations. I love having these conversations with you, Tessa. I love having these conversations with our incredible guests. I love being able to share these conversations with our audience. And it's been a long journey the last couple of years. We've been through a lot together. And I am so, so excited to present today's guest. And I know that Tessa shares in the enthusiasm because I've been wanting to get this person on the show since. I started it in 2016 and we have messaged back and forth since 2020 and just trying to make it happen schedules and you know shifting of of plans and and things but finally I am so happy and so honored and feel so privileged to present today's guest is Sharon Salzberg she's a meditation pioneer i mean truth be told Neither myself or Tessa would be here without this woman's incredible body of work. She's a world-renowned teacher. She's a New York Times bestselling author. She's one of the first people to bring mindfulness and loving-kindness meditation to the mainstream. It's been in our culture for over 45 years. And she has been inspiring generations of meditation teachers and wellness influence. I'm gonna do influencers with air quotes for so long. She's the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Bar, Massachusetts. And she's the author of 12 books, including the New York Times bestseller, Real Happiness. So I can go on and on about how incredible Sharon Salzberg is, but I could also just let you all listen to the conversation both Tessa and I had with her. Hello, everybody. I'm trying to not have a geek out moment. Sharon, I'm sure you get this all the time. People have fangirl moments. Both Tess and I are just, we've been talking about this interview since we booked it. So thank you so much for being here. Oh,
2: thank you for inviting me.
0: So one of my first forays into meditation, actually insight meditation uh, that you wrote with Joseph Goldstein, I think. Mm -hmm. Goldstein or Goldstein? Goldstein. Goldstein was one of my first meditation books. And that was back after I, it was like the year after I graduated high school, it was early 2000s. And it just completely changed my life and all of your works, all of your books, you've written so many books and you've, you've had such a incredible career. And I would be remiss if I didn't pay homage to that because I wouldn't be here. I have a career because of the work that you've done which is pretty incredible if you think about it. Do you ever do you ever look at the sort of the wellness industry or or the meditation community and and think about the impact of your
2: work? I guess in a certain way, you know, I started teaching when I was very young. I was 21 and I started teaching because My own teacher, one of my teachers, told me to teach. I thought it was ridiculous. I thought, I can (laughs) never do that. You know, it's (laughs) absurd. Uh, This was when I was leaving India in 1974. I thought I was leaving for a very short trip back to the U.S. to get a new visa and do some things and see my family. And then I was going to go back to India forever. And she said to me, well, when you go back, you'll be teaching. And I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, she will. And I said, I won't. It was absurd. But of course, as time went on, I did come back and uh, met up with Joseph Goldstein, who was teaching at Naropa Institute. And I started teaching with him. And one day I woke up and I thought she was right. <laughs> you know, like This this is my new life. And then when we started the retreat center, uh, the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, which is where I'm, I'm talking to you from uh, today. It was, you know, people say, oh, you must have had such vision. You must have had such courage. I say, well, not really. You know, like uh, I was 23 when we started the center and it was someone else's idea. And and we had a board of directors who were fortunately very kind of worldly smart. They like knew what a mortgage was, and <laughs> how to pay it and things like that. And, <laughs> and, and our mantra, honestly, for the first year was we can always close in a year. If no one here wants to learn how to meditate or this kind of meditation. We'll just close an ear, and we just we took it step by step, and we made many mistakes, and we just kept on going. And uh, more and more people, different kinds of people, became interested and uh, began coming here or other places to sit, and, um, and then it sort of moved from the intensive retreat model, which is how it began, to classes and kept moving and then it was recordings and then it was apps and it was, you know, where we are today. So, uh, you know, I know I have a, uh, almost a historical place in that. Um, and I sometimes say it's cause I am older now and I've only done one thing. <laughs> like <laughs> I haven't ever branched out, you know, really. And so, uh, I feel Incredibly fulfilled at in having done that one thing and having played a part, Sharon, I was curious to hear your
1: experience because you 've been doing this, like you said, this is the thing you 've been doing for decades, and I know for me, for example, my yoga practice has evolved so much over the course of beginning to be a teacher and now having been a teacher for a little while. I was curious to hear how your experience of having your own meditation practice has evolved over the years and are there any myths or um, kind of like things that you really truly believed in the beginning of your practice that you've changed your mind about completely now?
2: Oh yeah. I mean, you know, in, in terms of myths, you know, there were many because I like everybody probably went into the process with a lot of habits of mind and assumptions and I didn't realize I was bringing them. So for me, that was a really kind of fierce self-criticism and judgment and uh, really being unfair to myself. And uh, many people do that. And so I had very unrealistic expectations. I'm somewhat famous from, I still have a very close group of friends that I met in my very first retreat, which was January 1971 in India. And uh, at one point I went marching up to the teacher. My first teacher was SN Goenka, who taught an intensive 10-day retreat. And at one point I went marching up to him and looked at him and said, I never used to be an angry person before I started meditating, (laughs) thereby laying blame exactly where I felt. I mean, clearly it was all his fault (laughs) that I was experiencing all this anger, but even more clearly it was not his fault. I had been hugely angry, but hadn't really seen it. I was 18 years old. I had never been in therapy. At that point, I, I hadn't done any real introspection. I knew I was very unhappy, which is why I went to India to try to learn how to meditate. But I didn't really know sort of the dimensions of my emotional landscape. And, and so I judged everything and, uh, it was it didn't take 50 years to work through that, you know, but, uh, to learn again and again, you know, for a while. Now is another one of my teachers, this man named Meninja once said to me, why are you so upset about that thought that has come up in your mind? Did you invite it? Did you say at 3.15, I'd like to be filled with self-hatred, please? No. Because when conditions come together for something to arise, it will arise. We can affect those conditions for sure, but can we absolutely control them? No, we cannot. So more important is how do we deal with it once it's come up? How are we with what is challenging or, or difficult? And, so that was like a huge hurdle to get by. The form of my practice has changed a lot. Um, For many years, it was really a a mindfulness practice of some kind or another. In 1985, I went to Burma for this intensive three-month period of loving-kindness meditation, which is its own sort of methodology. They're very connected, but it is its own method. And then for about four years, that was my only practice was loving-kindness. Um, and then I went through a long period where I do sit every day still. And my formal practice in that sense, like, like say sitting returned to being a mindfulness practice or some kind of awareness practice. And, but I had this resolve to do loving kindness whenever I was waiting and I counted every mode of transportation as waiting. So walking down the streets of New York, every airplane, every, taxi, whatever it was. And, and then in the beginning of kind of the isolation of the pandemic, when I wasn't walking down the streets of New York anymore, and I wasn't on airplanes or taxis, I brought more formal loving kindness back into my dedicated period of sitting every day. And so it, it you know, it will probably keep changing in that way.
0: I love that. I can relate to that so much, Sharon. And I, I love that question, Tessa. Because I do feel it, it sort of validates the the actual event of your practice changing over time. It's not the same, and I definitely can relate to the anger coming up. The more I meditated, I I remember in the beginning I was just so angry. I was just so mad, and I remember I'd come home, and my partner, who's still my partner now, would would say, "You just meditated for an hour, and you are acting." Very erratically <laughs> like I just don't understand I think I'm doing it wrong. I think that it's, maybe this method isn't working and and I think for me it's it was absolutely doing a loving kindness approach which thank God it's something that is accessible and that it has been created and obviously from your expertise and and teaching it for so many years but it's interesting to me how a lot of people get so fixed on a specific type of practice or a specific type of practice that worked for a moment of time and having that that fixed mindset can sometimes prevent us from, from the growth that could happen. Can you speak to that a little bit more?
2: Well, I, I read somewhere that um, the Buddha was talking about the benefits of study, which is really just understanding. And one of the benefits of study is that it broadens our sense of what's the path, you know, so it's natural when something has been as often it is, you know, a huge help to you. And, uh, we get attached, you know, and, and there's that feeling of superiority. Like I have the best technique. I'm or even worse. I have the only technique and it's the only way instead of realizing, well, a technique functions to do certain things. It's not. Kind of an absolute truth in and of itself it you know a technique is helpful because it deepens qualities like compassion or concentration or both or awareness or balance you know and and there might be many ways to deepen those very qualities, and so the more we understand that, the less fixed we get to a certain way and and there's also you know there's just levels to that attachment, like when I went to Burma in nineteen eighty five and did intensive loving kindness practice, I came back, I had already been teaching for years and years. Um, and I began teaching loving kindness practice and, and there were any number of people who would say it's like second best or it's an, you know, it's like an emotional high. It's not the real thing. Like, you know, mindfulness practice, which leads to insight or wisdom and uh, it's not really a liberating practice. It's just like a feel good practice. And, and I, you know, looking back now, I think, oh, I, I know what they were saying. They're saying it's like a girly practice, you know, there was a whole gendered thing in there. And, and then, uh, really my rationale, of course, was that it had been so usually helpful to me. And I saw that if you in any way have a habit of self judgment, you know, and, uh, kind of self-condemnation. Mindfulness is actually not that easy because mindfulness is not just noticing something's going on. It's noticing in a certain way. It's like if you're aware that you're having a certain emotion and you hate it, that's not exactly mindfulness, you know? Or you're so frightened of it, you can't allow yourself to just feel it. That's not exactly mindfulness either. And so in order to kind of come into a better balance so that we can be aware with uh, less judgment. We need a kind of component of self-compassion, of of loving kindness. And it will come, no doubt, I think if you practice sincerely. Uh, And it also will come if you make a point of doing practices that are dedicated specifically to strengthening those qualities. And so... Uh, every path is our own, you know. It's it's not going to look exactly like anyone else's, and it, it's going to be because of our own uh, issues and, and ways that we need to come into balance. Mm, I love that.
1: I'm I'm thinking about. I'm right now. I'm listening to the audio format of your book, Real Change, and in that in the section I'm on right now, you're speaking to the reasons why we meditate in terms of, you know, beyond what we get from it personally, our own internal experience. Like there's many reasons to meditate um, and some of those expound, many of those expound beyond our internal experience. And I was wondering if you could describe that here.
2: Well, one of the examples, I mean, this isn't specifically um, a result of meditation practice, but one of the people interviewed in that book was one of the people involved in the striking fast food movement in New York city, people who work in fast food places and who were really struggling, you know, often working 40 hours a week and not, and not even making minimum wage and living in homeless shelters. And, and uh, at one point a group of friends of mine, you know, yoga teachers, meditation teachers and I met with a group of striking fast food workers. And and they were saying, you know, that even people in their families were saying, don't rock the boat. You know, you've got so little now, you will really have nothing. If you make waves, just be quiet, you know. And this, and this one woman said, I can't do that because I realize I deserve better. And not only that, but I look at these younger people coming up, and I think they deserve better too. And somehow that sense of of our own dignity and, you know, the Buddha said everybody wants to be happy, not happy in a happy-go-lucky sense, but a deeper sense. Everybody wants to be happy. And so some correlation of that is everybody should be happy, you know, if we could only figure out how and create the conditions. And so I thought, well, for me, the arrival at that sense of innate dignity and and worth came through meditation, as it does for many people. And so however one gets there, I think it's it's an essential component. And there are many things like that, that meditation can give us. And I also think of, often I think of the stress dynamic, because it's really a dynamic. There's the pressure and or the incident, the circumstance, and then there's the resource with which it's met. You know, that's the inner resource of inner strength. It's a sense of connection to others, not feeling so alone. And that's, you know, we know that from any given day, right? Like you didn't sleep last night, let's say, and you go to work and there's some comment made and you take it to heart and you feel so horrible and and the other and, you know, another possibility is you slept beautifully last night. You had a beautiful breakfast with loving friends. And you go off to work and you hear the same comment. and You think, boy, that person's having a bad day. Now, some people hear about something like a stress dynamic and they think, well, that means you're not going to ever do anything to try to change the circumstances, like if your job or your life. And And that's not true. But, like, why try to make that effort? from maximum exhaustion and depletion? Like, why not have a sense of inner strength as we go forward and, and look at our lives?
1: I think I just a follow-up question to that is the, if we were to take it one step further maybe and think about someone whose life is extreme poverty or severe trauma, um, you know, I think of that as not necessarily having all the basic needs net, met. It is it wise to develop a meditation practice? Can we d- develop a meditation practice from that place?
2: I think you can, you know. It's obviously better if you have enough to eat, you know. Right. And and some sense of sufficiency. But uh if you're talking about engaging in a struggle to try to achieve that for yourself and for others than some amount of inner strength. I mean, you could see it, you know, if you look at, as I have, and perhaps you have as well, look at videos of the civil rights movement in the United States, you know, and you see people going out to try to get the right to vote, you know, and going out and being beaten and challenged in so many ways. And I would watch these videos and see these people pray before they went and and they didn't seem, you know, despondent. And certainly they were more courageous than I, you know, and you think, well, where's that going to come from? It comes from a sense of solidarity with others. It comes from some ability to access something within as well. And so, but, you know, in case of like severe trauma or something like that, does uh, the presentation need to be flexible. Yes. You know, it's like, you know, I went off to India because I could. And my first teacher had us, well, not that I ever accomplished it sitting for an hour without moving eyes closed. And of course I could never sit for an hour um, without moving, but I was there, you know, and, and that was the instruction. And, Later on, going to Burma, I heard that there was some monastery. I'd never been there, but I heard about it where the schedule looked more like, um, sit for five minutes, then do walking practice for five minutes, then sit for five minutes and do walking practice for five minutes. And, uh, do you have to sit with your eyes closed? Maybe not. You know, can you do movement practice instead of being still? Can you be encouraged to get up if it feels like you're just getting overwhelmed things like that you know so you wouldn't want like a kind of doctrinaire teacher you know or a presentation it just wouldn't be appropriate
0: do you know if you're getting enough magnesium because four out of five americans aren't and that's a big problem because magnesium is involved in more than 300 biochemical reactions in your body Today, I wanna talk to you about the most common signs to look for that could indicate your magnesium deficient. Listen carefully to the end because there's a special offer happening and this could be exactly what you need. Okay, here we go. Are you irritable or anxious? Do you struggle with insomnia? Do you experience muscle cramps or twitches? Do you have high blood pressure? Are you sometimes constipated? There are dozens of symptoms of magnesium deficiency, so these are just a few of the most common ones. Now here's what most people don't know. Taking just any magnesium supplement won't solve your problem because most supplements use the cheapest kinds that your body can't use or absorb. That's why I exclusively recommend Magnesium Breakthrough. It's the only full-spectrum magnesium supplement with seven unique forms of magnesium that your body can actually use and absorb. All Bioptimizer supplements are best in class. If for some reason you feel differently, you can get a full refund, no questions asked. They are so confident that they offer 365-day money-back guarantee. Just go to www.buyoptimizers.com forward slash radically loved. Use the promo code radically 10 You can get gifts with your purchase. You can get two travel size bottles of magnesium breakthrough. Act fast. This is a limited time offer. Go to buyoptimizers.com forward slash radically loved and use the promo code radically loved10. It was such a great. I love that insight. It's so uh, so poignant and so relevant to the state of our society, especially now. I was just reading this poll that we are we are an angrier society. Or in the uh, in uh, in the US, we're an angrier society than we were a generation ago. That we are angrier, and so obviously the state of the world the way it is there's just seems to be a constant barrage of not great news ever <laughs> and and so i'm i'm curious from your perspective knowing that people are are angry and and many people have reason to be and and i understand that there's you know a lot of different um events going on in the world and it, it could be really difficult to grapple with what's happening, you know, and this this sort of age of digital media and and the constant, you know, for for the younger people, the constant comparison game that they're playing with everybody else and what success looks like, and you know, just in in every way, shape, or form. So we are angrier than we've been a generation ago. Help us.
2: What do we do? <laughs> you know, I haven't read that and I haven't seen if there are statistics, although I, I would love to to know because it seems to me that people are um, kind of nihilistic, you know, like with a greater sense of hopelessness and mm-hmm. despondency and also anxiety, you know, is very strong. So uh, I'd love to know if there's some research about that. And, um, I think in some ways, you know, we need to be able to form communities of our own as kind of countered to that prevailing ethos. You know, that there's nothing to be done, or we just have to be perpetually outraged to no effect. You know, and learn how to channel our discontent or anger into action, not feeling so alone. Um, realizing we are a part of some effort. And, you know, the the culture doesn't generally teach patience very well, you know, and we're very into instant gratification. And yet, you know, another thing I learned from interviewing all those people for real change who are involved in social movements is things take time, you know, and if you've got that need for immediate satisfaction, you're going to be so frustrated and just kind of learning, okay, you know, I'm planting a seed, that's what I'm doing for today Like I asked one of the people I interviewed um, who was very involved in the movement uh, to legalize same-sex marriage. And he talked about a 10-year project. And I said, how did you hang in there for 10 years? And he said, I just, every day I wanted to put a win on the board. You know, maybe it was a conversation with somebody. Maybe it was a letter to the editor in some newspaper. Maybe, you know, didn't have to be magnificent or you know, earth shattering, but every day I just wanted to do something toward the good. And and you think 10 years, that's a long time, but sometimes it's what it takes.
0: Oh, I, you know, it's, it's so interesting that you say that the, the key of patience and how important it is. And I grew up in, you know, the 80s and 90s. And so I, I was, I say privileged to not grow up in a digital age where that was, you know another thing to put on top of just the angst of growing up in a city and and in a you know community that was chaotic but i i bring up the patients again i i do volunteer work um for for prisons uh it's for it's teaching emotional intelligence to incarcerated people and i you know teach mindfulness practices and really it's just seeing how meditation shit helps them shift. Right. And you know, this is people, I I call them kids because we, we work from kids from the ages of 18 to about 28. And, um, it's just really interesting. There, a lot of them are in there for really long time, many, many years. And some of them, you know, uh, get out soon. Some of them are not getting out soon, but it's really interesting their perception of taking their time. And I'm like, okay, well, obviously for them, they don't have anywhere else to go. So they have to be able to, it's a privilege for them to be able to have a practice to do or a homework to do or an opportunity to explore emotional landscapes for themselves. But I see so much progress in such a short amount. And I say short amount of time for me, a year. That's a short amount of time, right? To see people that have grown up in very traumatic environments that have had a lot of PTSD and, you know, to be able to see that small little progression. And to me, I I see that and I think, wow, like, how how come we can't focus? How come we can't put more energy into into having that patience, right? Because you get a lot of, you know, and I I do this for a living and I see people just want the instant fix. Oh, can you teach me how to meditate? Can you teach, oh, can you teach me how to do this? I need to be calm. I, I just got diagnosed with high stress and high blood pressure. Can you just teach me how to meditate? And it's it, it's hard to tell people in a society that's used to getting the quick fix that things take time. I mean, your friend that did the 10-year project, like that is... Incredible. If somebody were to have said that to me, how long something's going to take, we get quickly discouraged by it because we don't want to wait. So, so how do we, I guess my, my question to you is how do we, it's my ideal Sharon would be i would love to go back to analog i love a good analog movement unplug me from the internet take me back to cassette tapes take me back to the records i want to read a book i want to feel things i want to be in person i want to be having conversations in real life you know so i'm i'm all about that life and change but knowing that that's probably not going to happen how could we how could we teach patients to this next generation or teach patients to those of us that have been or have inherited bad habits?
2: Well, I think you know it can become a question of balance like it's not gonna happen that we're gonna discard our devices you know <laughs> completely but We can learn balance in in a different way. It's an experiment. You know, it's taking it upon yourself, not to punish yourself, but to sort of check it out. It's like I was interviewed um, for this article about doom scrolling, and I didn't even know what the word meant. So I said to the journalist, what does that mean? (laughs) And he explained to me, you know, it's like you're scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. You're basically reading the same story is the point. You're getting upset each time (laughs) you read it. It's like maybe you need to read it twice to be informed and understand what's going on in the world, you know, and and more than once, maybe to really absorb it, but you don't need to read it 30,000 times, you know, which is what we do. And so, uh, it was a really interesting interview and, and realizing, you know, oh, you know what, especially with the habit of mindfulness, just to pay attention to how things make you feel, you know, which is interestingly enough, part of a, kind of a world of looking at addiction, you know, like we think this thing, whatever it is, is going to be the answer. And look at how it actually makes me feel in reality. You know, then it's much easier to let go of than when we think it's this cherished promise. When we say, oh, yeah, that felt yucky. You know, and so they use it with that kind of contemplation or reflection. With all kinds of things that we, we're sort of stuck with and or in, and so it's just a useful thing to be able to do because then we can decide for ourselves: Do I really need to read this thirty thousand times? You know, like I'm trashed. Well,
0: right. It's it's going back to that practice of discernment, right? How do we yeah. how do we discern? Okay, this actually doesn't make me feel good, but I think that most of the time we can't discern in in the moment until it's too late, until we feel the overwhelm, we have anxiety, we can't sleep, we're struggling in other areas of our lives, and we're coping by numbing with a substance or what have you, which is what most of us do. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I think that's a really great, great point. I guess the next question would be, how do we teach discernment? How do we learn to discern?
2: Well, I mean, you said it really, we can be aware in the moment, not just after a sleepless night. You know, we can feel in our bodies. We just don't. You know, we don't. We don't pay attention in that way, and so, you know, whatever we can do to bring that that quality of attention, will do a lot. You know, and sometimes that is a group endeavor because it's more fun, and there's there's immediate social support. You know, in doing something like that, and and it doesn't have to be like onerous or laborious, you know, people say things to me like um, I found a gratitude buddy. And that is, you know, many researchers will say that one of the most healing things any of us can do is to write down three things that we're grateful for from the day, like at the end of the day. And they don't have to be grandiose or magnificent, but, you know, many of us are kind of wired to only look at what went wrong. And how we failed and how we didn't measure up. And it's sort of a depressing analysis. And maybe all of that is needing to be looked at, but it's not the only thing in our lives. And if it's the only thing we pay attention to, you know, we get more and more depressed. Whereas we can have just a different balance, like looking at it all. So for many of us, that takes some intentionality because our minds aren't going to go to what we're grateful for. Automatically, We just don't have that habit. And so people say to me, I found a gratitude buddy. And we text each other at the end of the day with one thing we're grateful for from the day. And we kind of support each other in that way. Things like that. You know, you find a community where you can undertake these things so that you're paying more attention. Sharon, I wanted to hear you speak to...
1: Uh... Getting better at that pause in between response and and stimulus, I think it's. I've heard so many times, and I've heard you talk about this too the the choosing the re, the choosing a way to respond rather than being reactive to something in the moment. And it's something that I feel like I ebb and flow with, remembering to practice, and it's very easy to forget to do it. Um, and so I was wondering if you could speak more to that, please.
2: Well, I think, you know, people are trying to uh, use language in some ways to express some subtle things, you know, the difference, as you said, between reacting and responding, you know, to say we're practicing mindfulness doesn't mean that we're kind of inert, you know, we're never doing anything <laughs> about anything, but it's sort of that automatic reflexive, uh, you know, way of reacting that doesn't always lead us in a good direction, you know, because we have so many habits of mind and thinking and so on. So think about all those times where your first thought is, I can't do it. I'm not capable, which may not be true even. It's just an old habit in many cases. And so when that thought comes up, how are we going to deal with it? We need a little time, you know, so that we're not just shutting the door to some possibility right away. We can sit with the thoughts, with the feelings, we can say sometimes we, we say, Is that true? Um and then we have the chance to respond really based on, on a greater grasp of reality. You know, so like I, for mm-hmm. example, for many, many moons felt I could not do any public speaking at all. Which is always amusing to people given my life and how it unfolded, what? but um <laughs> The first retreat Joseph and I were invited to teach in this country was a month long retreat. And the format of our intensive retreats is people practice during the day. And we, you know, maybe we sit together, There's teacher interaction individually or in small groups is instruction and question and answer. But there's one formal lecture at night, like a discourse. And I couldn't do it. I just, I was petrified. Couldn't do it. And so that's 30 nights Joseph had to speak, and all these people were going up and yelling at him, saying, "Why won't you let her have a voice? Why won't you let her speak?" He say, "I'd love a night off, go talk to her, but I couldn't do it." And my thought was, "I'm going to be, I'm going to start, and my mind's going to go blank. I'm going to sit there in front of all these people, just looking like an idiot, you know." And I just couldn't do it, but that was just a thought in fact, and and through a variety of things, including loving kindness practice, um, not the formal one, because that came years later, but kind of picking it up as, as I could. Things shifted for me, you know, and so maybe I would be sitting in front of that room full of people, and I would have that very thought, but I'd have enough space to say, oh, that's just that old pattern. You know, and then maybe I would do a few moments of loving kindness so that The people I was facing didn't seem like the enemy how to get me, you know. But it's like, okay, here we are together. It was like we instead of us and them, or self and other. And so even if the thought came, it wasn't that all-powering anymore, you know, because I I had a different relationship to it and and I could respond differently. And so that's why we need the pause. It's just not to hurdle really fast into, into the reaction.
0: Hurtling is such a great word because that's exactly what happens. <laughs> we hurtle into this this big uh, experience. I I this speaks straight to my heart. Tessa, thanks. This is such a great question because I feel like a lot of us struggle with that, and I I think particularly what you're saying for me brings up the self-judgment that comes in, right? This well, just the idea of judgment in general, but the self-judgment that we have on ourselves and also the fear of others judging us, like oh, I'm gonna freeze. I remember the first couple of times I spoke, well, that I taught a public class in front of people. I was I forgot, I was teaching yoga and I I forgot to do one side and then we're doing the other side and I actually had a couple of people walk out while I was teaching, you know, and, and I just felt just completely broken inside. But, but I knew that I had to start somewhere. You can't just go from just starting to teach to, you know, here I am 20 years later. Right. So it, it, I love to always remember the feeling of that moment, the beginner, right. The, the feeling of, it's okay. It's okay if you stumble and fall. It's okay if you forget to do a side. Just be present and and acknowledge for me, acknowledging it is really the key. It's actually interesting because I, I want to ask you this question because a lot of people that listen to this podcast in the beginning it was we had a lot of uh, wellness people, yoga teachers, meditation teachers, you know people in in the wellness world it it the podcast has now grown and expanded to you know a lot of many different people but i'm curious for you you know as a pioneer of this work and and sort of expanding this this beautiful tapestry of of practices that have allowed us to to grow as as practitioners and and as teachers you know for for a lot of us what do you think are the main important qualities that a meditation guide should have. I don't want to ask the question so the question that I was asked while I was you know telling pulling the audience that I was gonna to talk to you, a lot of people were asking, what makes a good meditation teacher? What makes a good teacher in general? and how long do I have to practice before I begin to teach this this kind of thing for me, what makes a good teacher feels a little judgy to me because I feel like I'm going to set these parameters as opposed to approaching it from a a place of what qualities can I embody before I lead people through a practice, right? So that's the question. I wanted to give it some context.
2: Well, and I think we do ask the question of what makes a good teacher if we're looking for a teacher. Right. You know, so so, uh, it's something we we tend to assess the first thing that came up in my mind was this comment. My friend, Bob Thurman made, he's a, a Buddhist we love scholar. Bob. And, we know Bob. We yeah, love okay. him. Okay. So he said once, uh, if you get a teacher who says, um, I have the only way he said, run. And then he said, actually, grab your wallet and run, <laughs> you know? So basically it's often an intuitive sense, you know, of this, Trusting this person's intentionality or motivation that in Zen, they say a a good teacher or Zen master aspires to have students who surpass them, you know, so they're not teaching for the sake of their egoic gratification. They're teaching for the liberation of the student and teachers have different personalities. You know, some are fierce, some are gentle, uh, some are structured, some are kind of free form, you know, all kinds of stuff going on, but you have to have that some sense of trust. And also someone doesn't have to be your teacher for a lifetime. Mm. You know, I've had many teachers, many teachers uh, sort of, I mean, now many of them have died. Most of them have died, but you know, when they were still alive, even, you know, um, I was drawn to different people at different times for different reasons in, in my own evolution. And, And that was great, too. In terms of being a teacher, um, I think the uh, two really important things are continue to be a student. Like, I still have teachers. I still practice. Uh, My friend Joseph, we live in a duplex. He's on a three-month retreat right now in his house. Um, I just saw him in the entryway (laughs) before I got on. you know, and, and it's just very important, I think, to continue to learn and not to lose that sense. And, uh, and then I think, you know, it's also important, I found not to feel alone. You know, like I started teaching with Joseph and Jack Cornfield and a few other people, and there's always been a community of people and we've helped each other. And I've seen that in younger teachers coming up, you know, Watching them talk to one another, like, well, I was leading a body scan was one instance. And when I was leading the body scan, someone was saying to her, her group, uh, this happened and this is how I responded. What would you have said? You know, and they were sharing that kind of information. I, I am more concerned for the people who are kind of off alone, you know, uh, and and don't have that sense of a community and feedback and, and mutual help. In those ways, and um, and I think that question of patience really figures here too, because um, you know this is America, and everything is packaged and kind of uh, streamlined, and I think that feeling of being done is a very dangerous feeling, and. You know, I, I once recommend somebody asked me once about, um, how to, uh, do a certain kind of meditation with certain results. And, and, uh, this was, you know, quite some number of years ago. And, and I said, well, you know, I heard that there was a teacher in Burma who, who would, you know, do that approach and, and, work in that way. And he kind of looked at me horrified and he said, Burma, that would mean like at least a month. Oh. And I said, well, you know, a lot of people think about the very thing you're <laughs> asking about in terms of years, <laughs> you know, not like an hour and a half. And But we're brought up that way. You know, it's it's a very strong conditioning. Like, okay, you know, I did it for an hour and a half, I'm done. Um, and, and I think we need to loosen the grip of that. Yeah.
0: Oh, I love that. So, so true. Going back to patience. I will, I will call myself out and I'm going to call Tess out too, because we're both very impatient when it, it just, it it's very, I find it very difficult. The older I get, the more I practice, the more I study, I'm like this really waiting. It feels like it's just way too long. And it's, it's kind of funny. I, I find it in myself because I recognize it when it's happening. And I find that if I laugh at it, it sort of dissipates the charge of the rushed feeling and, and then it's fine. And then it's like, no, come on, this is really, nothing's really that important. You know, like it, it just let it be what it is and let's just move on. So I, I think I I appreciate that so much. I think it's such Great insight, especially with regard to being a teacher or being a student it it really is is an important thing to to keep at the forefront of our mind there's no There's no real place to get to at the end, is there? I mean we're just there i I remember there was a teacher that said to me once, "There is no there there." <laughs>
2: I love that.
0: (laughs) Like to to get to the end, there's no there there.
2: (laughs) So just be.
1: Yeah. Well, I wouldn't think
2: about the end, but there's progress for sure. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I'm thinking about this. uh, We've been talking a lot about like beginning a practice and creating more space for practice, being patient with practice. And I'm thinking about it for those listening that are like, yes, I know, I know I should try meditation. I know, I know. My doctor's telling me, my partner's telling me. And it just feels like, you know, in our landscape, we're talking about our culture. There's so many resources. It can feel overwhelming. There's so many people that say you need X, Y, and Z things in order to have a quote unquote meditation practice or you need to be able to sit in a certain way. And I loved, Sharon, how you were talking about holding it lighter and maybe it's five minutes sitting and five minutes walking. And so I was just curious if you could speak a little bit to like <laughs> the overwhelm of knowing where to start and what, what you would suggest to that beginner.
2: Well, I'm the kind of person who is very served by structure. You know, not everybody perhaps is, but I certainly am. And so for me, Um, what would help would be something like, uh, a commitment that I make to myself, you know, or maybe a small group of friends, whatever it might be that's limited, you know, so maybe it's like, I'm going to try to sit formally, uh, every day for a month or two weeks, whatever seems reasonable to you for, uh, I'll say 13 minutes and I'll tell you why in a second each time, you know? and so. well, the reason why is that uh, I have a friend, Amishi Ja, who's a neuroscientist who studies meditation uh, for people with high stress, like in high stress professions, like the military, high performance athletes, first responders. And what her lab has found, she's at the University of Miami, what her lab has found is 13 or maybe 12, I can't remember, it's either 12 or 13, uh, something like that. Let's say 13, we'll pad it a little bit. Uh, 13 minutes a day, three to five times a week will actually bring results. And I always tease her because we're friends. And I say, first of all, I don't know if it's that healthy to go for the bare minimum. You know, and she said, well, these are very high stress people. So I was looking for the minimum. You know, I was looking like in medicine, they look for the lowest effective dose. Like how much aspirin should you take for that headache? You know, and so that's what she found. And also I said to her, Self-knowledge plays a role here. Like for me, three to five times a week doesn't work because it will be Monday and I'll think, I think I'll start on Wednesday. It'll be Wednesday. I'll think I'll do it three times on Saturday and I'll never do it. But every day is every day. So if it's a reasonable commitment, let's say, I think it is 12, 12 minutes a day, every day. But if you can't do the 12 minutes, do three minutes, whatever you can do, but every day. And then evaluate at the end of that two weeks or month, whatever you've committed to. Because you do want to evaluate to see is this worth pursuing. But when you evaluate, don't look at like that period of practice. Look at your life because that's where you'll see the change. Maybe you still get sleepy when you're sitting. Maybe you still get anxious when you're sitting. But in subtle ways, you're beginning to relate to it differently. And you may not notice when you're actually sitting, but you will be different. Like when you make a mistake or when you meet a stranger or whatever it is, that's where you'll see the changes and that's where it counts. So, um, And you don't have to sit in a certain pose. You don't have to sit in a certain posture, really. Uh, they say the Buddha taught meditation in four postures, sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. Um, you can lie down if you need to, you know, and if you get sleepy, you can try lying down with your eyes open, something like that um, you know, so there are ways of practice that that are I think very accessible to people.
1: Thank you. I love that
0: I want to be respectful of our time too i 'm like i could we could this could be a two hour episode, and i I know that we only allotted a certain amount of time, so i I do want to be respectful. And, um, yeah, I think just the one last thing and it, it could be just super short. Um, it is 2024. It's an election year this year. Um, there's already so much, um, doom scrolling going on (laughs) and I, I felt like for myself, the the promise I made to myself at the beginning of the year was that I would focus more on being with people in in person and just creating more programs, classes where it's more supportive, just to give people the support that they need. Uh, in in and whatever that looks like for me, it might be, uh, you know, I have a, a monthly gathering here in our neighborhood, you know, we have all ages that live around here and we just tell people to come over and bring a snack and just to, to be with each other. And so, so that's just my focus, um, just to keep the positivity of the human condition high. (laughs) So that, that's what I committed to, to, to doing this year, um, and praying that everything, um, goes well for us. And so in saying that, um, what, what, what's your prayer or hope for us or something that you, you would recommend that we do this year to, to cope with what we know will, will probably be a a very, um,
2: you know, intense time. Well, I think taking an action, as you described, is really crucial. You know, like instead of sitting in frustration and outrage and uh, despair, whatever it might be, the one or two things that you can choose—maybe it's in your neighborhood, maybe it's in your family. What I have chosen for years now is to encourage voter registration. Speaking of election years, and to encourage participation. I just bought a hundred stamps to write letters uh, to voters and. Uh, you know, Ethan Nick Turn, our yeah. mutual friend, does yes. uh, gatherings online, and, and I think we'll start again soon, and um, where people uh, come together, meditate, uh, write a letter to you get a list, you know, of voters from different outlets, and uh, basically write why you yourself feel voting is important. Because for me, um, voting is, is, that opportunity to express that right to have a voice and to express your own innate dignity. um, It's very tied to that in my mind. And so uh, rather than feel, you know, it doesn't make a difference, it does make a difference. Um, And so for years and years and years, many election cycles, I've been really trying to work with that. And so I think I will again, you know. And you said there was a second? Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be that, you know. Oh, I see. And It could be. I I mean, I think the difference is sitting with all of those very distressing feelings, maybe tweeting about it, if you still do that, (laughs) you know, or actually thinking I'm going to take some action. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: You know, and sometimes we don't, because it feels like I can't resolve the huge, huge, huge problem. But we can do a little bit. And and that's just so crucially important.
1: Thank you, Sharon. Can I just briefly, very shortly, I, this is, you're in my mind often when I sit, and this is, a, um, I, I don't know when you recorded this lecture. I believe it was with Ram Dass. And I think you were describing your early days of meditation practice. And you said something to the effect of, I noticed myself leaning forward a lot. And then I realized, oh, I could sit back. <laughs> and so I'm often. You talked about becoming aware of yourself and your in your practice. And I noticed that, like that, leaning forward and then leaning back really shifts my perspective. It allowed, like I was asking about, um, the creating this space to pause, and that allows me to do that. So, like Rosie said oh my gosh, your work just ripples. You're with me in my head. And I just want to thank you so much for your time. Oh, well, thank you. We can just have a Sharon. We love Sharon (laughs) fan club party here.
0: Um, Sharon, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for being with us. We, again, it's it's an honor and a privilege. And I, I think it's so important for us to be able to honor our teachers and the people that came before us, because if we don't have that sort of reverence to the people that paved the way, then what do we have? So thank you for everything that you've done. Your work, your career has made a huge impact. I mean, think about the impact that we're all making and, and our goals and and to have the this, this sort of path of making the world a better place and, and that being the intention and, it, and it's all thanks to your work. So thank you again, from the bottom of my heart. Um, we ask this question at the end of the podcast. It's, it's, we ask it to all of our guests, but before I ask you the final question, uh, where can people go to find you for more information or to connect with you? Uh,
2: the best place is SharonSalzberg.com. It's just my website. Do you hang out on social media at all? I do. do. Which uh, one is your uh, I'm on Twitter or whatever. It's called X now. I, I'm on uh, Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Okay, on everything. So we'll,
0: we'll add those links. On the, yeah, I'm on everything. Yeah. I'm not on everything. TikTok.
2: I never figured it out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you would love... I think you'd be great. Oh, my goodness. Tessa, can you imagine... Sharon on Twitter. I would that, that would make me join TikTok. We, <laughs> we need to figure this out. Um, okay, so all of those links will be in the show notes wherever you get your podcast. If you're watching this show on YouTube, be sure to subscribe. In the subscribe button, check out the description for all the links. Uh, again, thank you and thank you, Tessa, for being here. You are such a valued member of our radically loved community and family, and obviously. I wouldn't have a show if it wasn't for you. So thank you so much. Um, And uh, the final question for you, Sharon, is I started this podcast because I wanted to create a place for people to feel supported, inspired. And I would say that I, I wouldn't have found my way to this place had I not felt radically loved. And it really all stems from loving kindness. So again, right back to you and your work. So the the idea is that we have this radical love force that sustains us, whether it's God, source, whatever it is that you believe in. Uh, The universe works for us, not against us. So the final question to you is, how do you feel radically loved?
2: I feel it uh, every day, I'd say. Uh, When I pause, there's something I connect to and we can all connect to. And probably the um, primary kind of marker of that or reminder of that for me were my teachers, you know, various meditation teachers, much more than my family of origin. Um, But it's kind of never too late, you know. And so uh, just having that model was was really essential.
0: Thank you. Mm Thank you, Sharon, so, so much for joining us. We hope that you come back and join us again. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcast. And we will see you next week. Hey, friends. Thank you so much for listening to the Radically Love podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. Also, don't forget to check out the Mindful Love Hub on Substack. This episode was produced by Tessa Tovar. Music by DJ Taz Rashid.